Dr. Rupa Maria is a physician, activist, writer, mother, and a composer. She is a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, where she practices and teaches internal medicine. Her works sits at the nexus of climate, health, and racial justice. Dr. Maria founded the Deep Medicine Circle, an organization committed to healing the wounds of colonialism through food, medicine, story, and learning. Bringing together farmers, artists, land stewards, cooks, activists, and healthcare workers, the Deep Medicine Circle is advancing a model of the food system based in care called Farming is Medicine. She has toured 29 countries with her band Rupa and the April Fishes, whose music was described by the legend Gil Scott Heron as, quote, liberation music. Together with Raj Patel, she co-authored the best-selling book Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice. Hello, Dr. Rupa Maria. Welcome to the Decolonizing Healthcare podcast. Such an honor to have you here. Wow. So happy to be here. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And oh man, there's so much I, I know that we can dive into. And I and I really kind of just want to ask you this question to lay the groundwork for um for this conversation. And I would love for you to share in your heart what the current dominant medical culture, what about that current culture, this current culture that we're in is causing harm? Um, you know, when I think about this this title decolonizing healthcare um everything these days is about decolonizing um and um the work of decolonizing is is really about the shift of power and that shift of power specifically back to indigenous communities from whom it was taken in the places that we live and i was just talking to my 21 year old poma wintu friend gabby who helped us set up this time who works with Deep Medicine Circle? Mm-hmm. I was like, Gabby, what's decolonizing healthcare to you mean? And she said, Well, um, you know, and I said, I, I'm just going to get there and say land back. Like, that's like, that's <laughs> what this is. And she said, Well, yeah, because if indigenous people had their land back and were in charge of stewarding that land, we wouldn't be facing the health crises that we're facing today. And that's it. Like that's I'm like, okay, I'm just going to quote you there. So that's uh, Gabby's 21 year old assessment, uh, which is right on. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things we talk about, like this is decolonizing my mind or decolonizing my diet, decolonizing. But these are not things we can do as individuals. These are things that have to happen structurally. Um, and for healthcare, that means um, returning land and sovereignty to people who's, on whose land we find ourselves. Um, because this health systems that we are on and in have been structured through the logic of colonialism. And um, they will never be able to address the root causes of the health problems we face, um, which are caused by that same system um, that brought us here in the first place. And so, um, you know, it's, it's important to look at as we're experiencing in my, I'm looking at my screen because I'm, I'm seeing these activist doctors now doing uh, um, uh, an action in San Francisco to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. Says so we're looking at the brutal colonial occupation of Palestine um, over the last 75 years by Israel, um, not to say Jewish people aren't also indigenous to that place, 
but the dynamics of coloniality that are expressed through the state of Israel are dynamics that have happened here in you know these territories. They're the same dynamics of enclosing people and booting them off the land and making them second-class citizens in their homeland and restricting water and destroying their food systems and imprisoning and enclosing and border walls. And these dynamics are the logic of colonialism. And so when you look now at the outcomes of higher rates of diabetes amongst Palestinians, higher rates, you know, chronic burdens of um, inflammatory disease um, in this population of people who've been oppressed by um, the state of Israel, it's, it's, you know, this is the same diagnosis and the same treatment, which is decolonization. Um, we have to imagine a way forward where we can all be in relationship to the earth and to one another in ways that uphold our ancestries, the beauty of our ancestries, and also um, can heal and find new ways forward that our ancestors were unable to accomplish. Um, so um, I think about those spaces, um, Palestine, Kashmir, Kashmir is experiencing similar violence from, you know, fascist Hindus, um, people who are weaponizing religion to mm-hmm. advance right-wing um, agendas. Um, and, and these agendas are coming forth, you know, in places where the British empire had brutally colonized and then driven, um, you know, sectarian divisions between peoples that had lived for thousands of years together. Now, of course, we've had our territorial disputes and um, there have been waves of colonization throughout these areas, but none so completely destructive as the last wave of um, European colonization all all across the world. Um, So when I think of decolonizing healthcare, I really think of land return and um, not just land return as a real estate transaction or moving of title, but but land return to herself. Um, understanding that we, um, you know, the earth doesn't belong to us, but we belong to her. And that we all have different um, duties in different places. And so um, that is, you know, a part of this work that is something actually for all of us to participate in. Um, whether we are on someone else's lands um, or whether we support that, that, that effort in our homelands. Wow. Thank you for that. That's, um, that really lands, uh, for me. And, and when you, when you speak to this duty, you know, that we each have a a duty, I'm curious, you know, as like, like you're a physician, I'm a nurse, you know, like we're teammates. (laughs) And so as, as clinicians, like what specifically do you envision, like what is our responsibility in this decolonizing movement and why? Well, right now it's to demand a ceasefire in Gaza because people are being wholly exterminated. Um, the genocidal practices of Israel right now and over the last you know, 15 years, especially with the blockade of Gaza, it is an open air prison. It is being carpet bombed. Um, hospitals are being targeted. Um, our colleagues have been killed. Um, so they're going in between working in these hospitals where there's no electricity, no anesthesia, Children are having amputations with no anesthesia. There's no medication. Um, they're pouring vinegar on wounds to prevent pseudomonas infections. I mean, the, the stuff that's coming out from clinicians there is horrific. So it is our duty to speak up and say, no, this is, this is a horrific abuse 
um, these are war crimes. This is genocide. So the simultaneous um, carpet bombing of Gaza, which is an enclosed area where 2 million, 2.4 million people live, 50% of whom are children. And the purposeful cutting off of supplies that are vital for medical care, food, water, electricity, medication, and fuel has accelerated morbidity and mortality to a crushing degree. Um, so we are witnessing just a, a stunning and staggering loss of life and um, wellness and health in Gaza. So it is absolutely our moral duty to speak up for a ceasefire. And what we're seeing across the country are medical institutions being silent, not only as individuals, but we need to, we need to speak up institutionally. Um, and so what does it mean when we're silent in the face of genocide? And why are we silent in the face of genocide? Um, what moral authority do we lose when we're silent in the face of genocide? And so there's been a lot of work in the last five to 10 years of these very careerist people jumping onto the diversity, equity, inclusion bandwagon, their health equity experts, Right. Oh yeah. All of them are silent. I don't see any of them speaking up. Yeah. None of it, them. Are, I, I see none of them speaking up, which to me just calls their um, hypocrisy and their self-interest in quote, advancing health equity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, so that's like where, you know, that's our duty is to, to name the ways in which we we focus on careerism rather than the movement for health for all. Um, the way in which we focus on careerism as physicians or nurses, um, people in healthcare, is a part of the colonial capitalist mentality. As long as I can take care of myself, we're going to be okay. Right. That we forego collective approaches together to say this is our sacred duty to protect all healthcare facilities around the world doesn't matter whose side you're on right. that we don't go bombing hospitals where thousands of people are wounded and, and there for care where elderly and children are. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, you just sharing about this silence in the face of genocide is, and, and these kind of um, captured like DEI movements, which I could, you know, definitely go on with you about on tangent because I, that was, you know, being working at UCSF and being a part of like working with administrators and stuff and, and, and questioning them, you know, ar around like what I was actually seeing at the bedside and treatment of patients versus what was being perpetuated by administration on equality and, you know, diversity and whatever, whatever the narrative is. It's just so interesting that like, that, uh, you know, to see that and to really name it for what it actually is, which is actually, you know, in my opinion, just complete, like it's, it's just fake. It's just been to fakeness, you know, being perpetuated by a colonial system. Right. So it's kind of also like, how do we expect people who are benefiting from that system, the system in the way that it is. And actually this is something that I, you know, I struggle with myself and part of why I had to kind of like walk away from the hospital was like, if I'm benefiting from this institution, like how can I really decolonize 
And at the same time, recognizing like that we do need people in the institution to still show up like what, you know, what you're doing. And so, so I, you know, I wonder, I don't know what the answer is, but, but to come back to your point about being silent in the face of this genocide, it's like, I'm absolutely not surprised at all that institutions aren't saying anything about hospitals being bombed in this genocide, given the fact that like we have been complicit for hundreds of years in the treatment of black and brown bodies, like in our medical system. And like, if we just look at history, you know, we can really see this um, legacy being laid in medicine. And so it's really our duty to like call that into awareness and do something about it and change. Right. Yeah. I don't think, I mean, I think it's actually even a little more simple, simpler than that, you know, Helen Diller, who we have all these things named after our Helen Diller cancer center, the Diller family foundation funds settlements in the West bank. Uh, Mark Benioff, Benioff foundation funds the IDF. Mm. Howard Maybach, who is a professor of dermatology, who's 90 something years old and is still employed by the University of California, um, was injecting black and brown imprisoned people with pesticides and other chemicals um, with IRB reviews um, through UCSF. Um, That was exposed, that went big and on the news and UCSF issued an apology, an apology, but he still works there. Why? Why does he still work there? The Maybach family is a big funder of the IDF. The presence of Zionist faculty in our institution and how they're supported by foundations that have Zionist agendas are part of the, this is part of the reality. Yeah. So once we understand that, we have to start pushing in our institutions for um, different kinds of agendas. And that is that is work that requires collective organizing and mobilization of resources. Um, is that going to be an uphill battle? Yes. Is that one that should be taken on? Absolutely. Because these are the institutions we have. Um, we're not going to decolonize them. I'm not under any impression that you can decolonize UCSF. This right. is part of the structure. This is part of the system. But do we have to address these harms as they come up? Yes, because patients come to UCSF. People come to where we are when they get in big trouble, when they get the diseases that colonialism causes. Um, And so this is why I say, if we really want to decolonize healthcare, we have to move land back. We have to return all of the land to where I live, California native people, and learn to work and live under their perspectives, with their perspectives, with their ceremonies, with their land practices, with their limits, um, so that so that we can learn how to be good guests on their land. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a is a process. And so it doesn't mean I'll be healthy or maybe my kids might not be healthy, but maybe my great grandchildren would have the opportunity to drink clean water and breathe clean air if that was the reality we lived with. Um, and so that process, if it's been, um, you know, 300 years of destruction will be 300 years of repair. Uh, that's a timeline that needs to start. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't, you know, I don't want to make it, you know, Fanon felt the same. He had to walk away from the hospital. Yeah, It is decolonization work. And that is completely understandable. I spend most of my time now on a farm where I was just at, 
uh, meeting with a bunch of artists and um, people in environmental arts and social practice to talk about how we create, how we create decolonial futures, mm -hmm. how we do that on land, how we work together, uh, how we build different ways of being new rituals, new opportunities um, to like bring the human hoop back together after being so severed from one another for so many hundred years. And so, and then how do we do that in partnership with our indigenous friends um, who are in the process of healing their relationships with the land from which they've been violently displaced and the songs and the foods and the cultures and the language, mm -hmm. languages that they've been forcibly, you know, brainwashed, had their, had their minds erased um, through the, you know, genocidal project of the United States. And so um, these realities require a kind of um, openness and um, a healing orientation. It also requires a political clarity that, you know, we're not here to um, take these words that are very important and mean something and kind of wishy-wash them into like decolonizing my diet, um, you know, like as if this was something that you could do on your own. Right. Um, which is how capitalism, you know, atomizes us and the limits of our imaginings. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's also, again, like comes, moves away from what, you know, where we all come from, which is this holistic um, understanding of, of ourselves in this web of life, you know, and, and how we can be in relationship, like you were saying to the earth, to our waters, to each other um, and really, and really move. And, and really it's not, it sounds like what you're saying is like, not going backwards to where we used to, but building um, solidarity moving forward together, given the structures that we are currently a part of right now. Um, can you share a little bit more about this farm and um, the deep medicine circle and the farm work that you're doing and how, how is that, um, is that, how is that bringing hope to you and, and everything that you're experiencing? Cause you know, um, so pin in that, but then I also wanted to share when I asked you, you know, like about our duties and you, you were, you mentioned calling for the ceasefire, uh, before I became a nurse, I was a political science major and, um, thought I wanted to be in immigration law and all of these things. And then that quickly faded. But, um, one of my political science teachers, he would say, you know, you think globally and you act locally, right? So in this thinking globally, you know, we can think of Gaza and this calling for ceasefire and like doing what we need to do to contact our elected officials and hold institutions accountable and, and continue with that. And, and then also what can we physically do? Like getting our hands in the soil, you know, moving, how can we support land back movements? How, what can we do in our communities as well as doctors, nurses, um, yeah. Well, I think that I think that for Gaza, um, it's not just a ceasefire. The ceasefire has to be the first step. Um, the 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 actual work is to end the occupation. Um, that 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 land should not be occupied by right. some violent fascist government that's created this apartheid reality. Like to end the apartheid and the occupation, let the Palestinian people be free. Um, and and that that work has its own set of future building questions, right? right. Um, and in order to do that, yes, you can call your senators, but like, good luck with that. That's not going to work. Um, the way in which we can get our hands dirty is by organizing a strike. 
Um, and the thing is, the left is so disorganized and so atomized and so infighting that when we have um, key legislation taken apart here in this country, we have no response because everyone who is like organized to fight for an issue like abortion rights are those organizations were too busy fighting each other. You're anti-black, you're anti-trans, you're anti-this, you're anti-that. Everyone is weaponizing identity politics, fracturing our bonds, calling everyone out, throwing everyone under the bus. So what do we have? We have an ineffectual response to a 50-year planned agenda of the right to take away this, this access. And what do we do on the left? Nothing. Vote vote them out that's our that's our imagined solution to all these women's lives and reproducing people's lives now being jeopardized by not getting the kind of full suite of reproductive health care that they need so that means we've got such big (laughs) such work to do because if we wanted to be effective in this moment when there is an act of genocide happening we would grind this economy to a halt through organization. We have none of that right now on the left. Mm. And and we are watching what happens when we don't have that. Immigration rights taken away, rights of immigrants, rights of trans people, rights of like teaching history, Um, all of these things that have been part of a right-wing agenda in this country. And now we're watching the right-wing agenda in Israel and Gaza, just wipe them out. Land grab in Gaza is, is happening. And we're standing there going, what can we do? Call our senators? That's not, I mean, we should call them. I'm not saying we shouldn't. Go ahead and call them. What would really stop them is what happened when we all stayed home from COVID for a few mm. weeks and we watched the price of oil go down to zero. Right. Well, why did that happen? We just didn't go to work. People just didn't go to work. They stopped moving. They stopped driving. They stopped buying things. They say they stayed home. Right. So that's the kind of thing where it's like, yeah, sure, we could farm and grow food and that'll make us feel better. But what we really need to do right now is start organizing and go on strike, boycott, yeah. strike, strike and boycott. And that's the thing um, that is important to know that these are the tools that we have as people committed to social movements. And these are the tools yeah. that have been left beyond our wildest imaginations as we now sit and like fight each other over whether or not we're anti this or anti that. Yeah, I love that you uh, are calling out the identity politics because I do feel very similarly in that this is becoming so uh it's just paralyzing people and and this is actually what we have what the result of what i've seen actually in this dei movement that you've just uh now the shaming and continues people then are just not empowered to do anything and and so this idea of a general strike i love and actually i being a union rep for california nurses association and a bar- former bargaining team member myself i've been calling for a general strike for quite a while and so it's like well why not you know like let's just do it it's just it, it's like we just have we need the will and it's like if we aren't doing it like you said in the space of genocide like you know i i guess my my other my other question is like when we do have this so many so many that 
remain, while we have this extreme amount of imbalance and suffering that is very palpable, we can all feel even before what has happened um, or what has been publicized. I mean, this has been happening in Gaza for quite a while, um, but and we still haven't done anything about it. Like, right. Like our neighbors are our, our houseless neighbors on the streets. I mean, you know, you and I are, have both been in Ohlone, Ohlone territory and, and we have seen, I mean, I especially watched through COVID like that, you know, the houselessness crisis just go through the roof. And I'm like, how are we not doing anything about this? Oh, we're putting people in hotels. Like there is just bandaid after bandaid. And to me, that just continues to speak to that, um, reactive, that reactivity rather than being holistic and proactive and cautionary approaches. And so how do we, yeah, like how do we dream together to move forward through this, to organize this general strike and to really, yeah, to just envision something different and make things happen radically because we need things to happen fast, right? Yeah. The only thing is what needs to happen is things need to build slow. Um, so the, the kinds of friendships and trusting relationships in order to make something like that work, the, the amount of discipline that is required to subjugate anyone's individual ego to a collective approach to get something done Mm -hmm. is, is, uh, it's a discipline that we don't have. Right. Um, and so for the work around unhoused people, I look to the work of Poor Magazine and Tiny um, and what she's done as a formerly unhoused person building housing in East Oakland for unhoused people with unhoused people, their Mm -hmm. own, um, their own solutions that encompass all the things they know that unhoused people need to re-enter a state of mind and being um, emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally, um, where they can, can be, housed a state she calls homefulness and that work is incredibly important and powerful and should be followed and should be uplifted and should be learned from um as doctors and nurses those are the people we should be learning from yeah did she get wait, is she the one did she get shut down by the city though was that her project because um, i've heard of a couple they, projects like that were going they on tried to uh just delay her permitting but she hasn't been shut down they're building more they're building Great. more yeah, Amazing. she's done incredible. Um, I mean, it's just an uh, just a tenacity and a and a political analysis that is um, very very important. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think that building those relationships takes time. Uh, Tiny hosts a uh, the People of Poor magazine host a teaching of people with race, class, um, and academic privilege. Um, called People School twice a year, once in January, once in August, um, where anyone can go there and learn um, alongside them about um, this movement. It's really important um, political education work to just Mm -hmm. get people aware of what we can learn from people who are unhoused and formerly unhoused. Um, so, So yeah, those are the those are important ways to think about, you know, who teaches us in medicine, our patients teach us, people with lived experience teach us. Um, of course, our colleagues also teach us, our nursing colleagues teach us, and, you know, as physicians and physician colleagues teach nurses, mm-hmm. like there has to be an openness to learning from people of different backgrounds and a, and a way to approach knowledge that is um, 
has multiple strands coming in to create a rich tapestry of knowing rather than one singular focus of um, like one strand or one uh, source of knowledge and knowing. Right. And also it sounds like you're speaking to this moving away from like this hierarchy, right. That we see in medicine and in all of these institutions, right. Where it's like deferring to the doctor. And I still, I mean, you see this all the time and it's like, wait, but, and then you really, again, continue to question our own intuition and can become more disconnected from that, that sense of knowing and um, what you stand for, what's right. And how to actually be an advocate for, for genuine health, you know? Um, and, and I also wonder like how much, you know, what I've seen is like how much of all of that in that system is directly correlated with this burnout crisis that we're seeing with nurses and physicians, you know, physicians having the highest rate of suicide among any profession. And it's like, okay, well, are we surprised as to why, you know, like, can you share any, uh, I mean, I know you did talk about this in your book inflamed and um, you did speak to this a little bit about the burnout and, and your colleague who, you know, suffered that heart, that heart attack. And, um, you know, can you share a little bit more about like what you see as um, being kind of like the driving forces of this right now um, among, because it's like, how can we advocate for health in others when we aren't health, when we're actually sick ourselves? Yeah. Um, I think that like the root cause for me is the system itself. So if we're living in a system whose logic is based in domination and based in subjugation of the earth and other people and other beings, you can't have health. The health doesn't come out of that kind of arrangement. If you have, uh, you walk outside and you're breathing air that's been polluted by industrial chemicals, you're eating food that was grown with chemical weaponry put on the earth to kill pests, to kill pests and, and weeds. Um, this is not a system of health. This is a system right. of extraction and control. Um, that, and so I think the burnout comes from that. I think it's exacerbated by working in a for-profit system where health has been, uh, medicine has been made scarce. That's how colonization works. You go into a place, you make food, shelter, and medicine scarce. That's how the birth of capitalism happened in Europe. They enclosed the forests. What were forests? Forests were places where peasants and anyone could go into to get food, medicine, and mm. shelter, to build their shelter. All the resources are there in the forest. Once those were enclosed, you had people who had no land and no access to food, medicine, and shelter. Uh, materials to make shelter, all they had was their labor to sell. So when you're desperate enough and you're hungry enough and you're sick enough, you're going to go sell your labor because that's all you got. And that is the birth of the working class. Um, and that is, you know, so when you wonder like, why is it that people are left outside, you know, during COVID? Well, this society runs by keeping housing insecure. This society runs by medicine being unavailable. Um, it, yeah. it keeps a group of people, it, it manufactures the scarcity, um, doesn't have to be that way. And so I think that people in medicine get burnt out by the psychic weight of knowing that the things that people need are not things that they can actually get. And then you're like, okay, I know what would make this person better, but it actually just doesn't exist in the reality that we have created structurally. So that's why the work of decolonizing is structural change. It absolutely thousand times percent has to be. 
a structural change and a, and a, and a mindset orientation about what health is and what health is not. Health is not an attribute of an individual. Health is a phenomenon uh, that emerges when systems are in harmony, when systems are working well together. Um, it's a win-win-win for everything. And that is what we're modeling on the farm. Um, so it's a 38-acre land return project in San Gregorio on the San Mateo coast, um, where we're working um, the Deep Medicine Circle, a nonprofit organization we created in COVID to help return land and heal land and feed people um, is, is, a, is a entity that is working with indigenous and non-native people together to innovate different systems of care. And one of those we call farming is medicine. And that project involves returning land to native people <clears throat> and partnering on what a food system can look like. It involves um, paying the people who are working the land like healthcare workers, because our health starts in the soil and how we take care of the, the soil and the plants and the food and the, and the water. It um, involves decommodifying all the food, taking it out of capitalist market logic and giving it all away. So last year we gave away 36,000 pounds of organic food um, to people who are experiencing food insecurity. Many of them are my patients, which feels so good to see them getting food. Um, and then, um, and then, and then this year we're on track to be, we're, we've already done about 50,000 pounds of food. Um, and then the last bit is um, food is medicine, which is what has always been. Like once our foods have been liberated from the market system, we can relate to them differently again as the abundance that mama earth has given all of us. Always. Um, and so that's, that's that kind of work. Um, and this is work that should be recreated and, and, and kind of put into the space of policy as we have it right now on the local city level um, and then expanded. Um, and so that's, that's some of the work that we're doing with our circle. Wow. That sounds, that's amazing. And I, and again, it sounds like it does always come back to the land, right? The land back, right? Like this is, that's, that's the root of this um, deep medicine farm and circle is returning the land back because indigenous people have always known how to be in harmony and relationship with the land, you know, and, and, and so I, I just thank you for sharing that, that, that brings me hope actually knowing that something like that exists and and how can we do more of that? How can we support more of that? And also, like you're saying, native and non-native people working together, because that requires also building of trust, right? And like you said, that takes time. As I know, in my past year in the Hawaiian kingdom, building trust and being consistent and showing up, it's um it's part of our duty as um guests on the land that we are not native to. So um so yes, thank you for speaking to that. And um, wow, it's just so much. It really is. Uh, no, and it's interesting because so the land back work too, it's important to think about how people are weaponizing indigenous identity too right now. So you've got Jewish people saying, well, we're indigenous to this land too. So the language of colonialism doesn't really work here. Mm. I'm like... That is true that you're indigenous. That is true. You have a right to homeland in this region. 
But does that mean you get to like kick out your neighbors and like stick them in a, an enclosure and carpet bomb them and take away their right. like ancient olive groves and actually take the keys to their home? Like, yeah. is that like, what is that? That's a colonial dynamic. Mm. Um, you'll have people who claim, you know, they're like 164th indigenous, um, have had no um, community building with indigenous communities. They've had no time in ceremony, but they're like, got this 64th. And now they're the tribal chairman of this tribe. People thought were erased um, and are going and trying to get millions of dollars to do environmental work and, you know, access to land and speaking in these ways. So it's like, okay, where are we actually becoming colonial in right. our indigeneity and in, yeah. in, in the identity politics of it? Right. Where are the indigenous people who aren't on that trip because they have a different mentality? You know, people I yeah. look to like Chief Colleen of the Winnemumwintu um, and her work with the salmon. Mm. Like there's, there's work there that is literally healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, because it's not work that serves one person or one family. It's work that's serving, open to serving the whole system. And that is a kind of thinking that all of us have in our ancestral lineages. Right. Like my ancestors are indigenous to Punjab. That's where I'm from. And I was here, born here in Ohlone territory because of the dynamics of colonialism in my homeland, where 100 million people died during Winston Churchill's involvement in mm -hmm. India in the, you know, between 1880 and 1920, 100 million people died. Um, and these were, you know, situations that were brought by colonial policies. Um, and so, um, it's important to think about what indigeneity is for all of us in our specific contexts and what it is not. Um, and how do we um, come together as people with our indigenous histories and our medicines that were given to us by our ancestors that we carry forward. Um, and how do we do that in the right way in someone else's homeland? Now that so many of us are diaspora, mm -hmm. so many of us are diaspora. And so those are questions that are really pressing and important to address. And they should not confuse or obviate or, or deflect the need for California native people to get their land back. Absolutely. Um, right. And so that's, there's just, you know, there's just an important um, these are important things. These are this is like the thick meat and like the thick sauce of um, the questions of our day that that I've been sitting and thinking about and you know praying on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, wow! I, I would love to keep going flowing with you and just want to honor your time and your your energy today, Rupa. Thank you for being here, and I would love to have you back anytime, and so we can dive a little more deeply and. Um, and you know, before we go, is there any, anything else you want to, any advice you have for, for folks who are just embarking on this kind of journey of decolonizing, like, you know, what, what do you recommend for them? Any resources, reading, where can you point them to, to begin uh, doing this in right relationship with integrity? I would say, um, do some reading. Um, I, I like Ame Cesar's discourse on colonialism is a good good starting reading 
um, to learn to recognize coloniality wherever you see it in yourself around you, um, to not feel shame and blame as you do it, but to understand that we've all been um, wrecked from a spiritual place and that that process of healing is long and, um, and that it involves collective action. I would ask them to find out whose land they're on and ask how you could be of service. Um, and I would um, invite people to a pra any practice in their lives that open their imaginations. Because if we can't imagine the future in a different way, it will never come. But as we do imagine that future, incredible things are happening already right now. And it's happening right, right this moment as, you know, the earth is begging for our help. Um, and so uh, I invite you to come to the farm um, and sit together. Uh, we do a Heal the Healers gathering um, on the land um, to help us process, you know, front frontline healthcare workers process our trauma with the pandemic, especially. There's a lot of trauma that needs to be released. Yes. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, I'm excited to know you. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Rupa. I, I graciously accept the invite and definitely would love to join. So we'll look forward to having you back. And thank you again for joining us on the show and just dropping so much love and wisdom here with us. Thank you. You take care. A huge thank you and note of gratitude to you again, Dr. Rupa, for your time and sitting with us. We know that you have a very full schedule so thank you for this perspective and offering that to the audience. For those of you who are interested in connecting further with Dr. Rupa and her work, please check out the show notes. I'll have some links there where you can learn more and also support. I hope this episode serves to support you all and offers perhaps an opening into what solidarity means. I'm looking forward to having more discussions on this and really unpacking um, embodied solidarity. And I really pray that we can continue to dig deeper to find the courage within ourselves, within each other, and, and support that within each other to stand in solidarity, to move to action, and to sacrifice a little bit right now. What's needed right now is not comfortable. It's not easy and it's really the only way we're going to move towards collective liberation and that will require some sacrifice from a lot of us so um, you know we all deserve to be fed we all deserve access to good health care we all deserve um, housing we all there's so many so many things that are needed right now in our communities and and solidarity is the only way and that doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. That doesn't mean we have to mirror each other's lives and, and we don't have to live the same, you know? That's not that's not nature. Nature is uh, thrives in diversity. So how can we, again, look to mother nature for what's needed? So um, please share, comment, like, subscribe, and we'll see you next time.